Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news, well, almost exclusively from the United States, some little bits about Brazil, and a see you in hell from Nazi Germany. Going to start out with the United States talking about CPAC, that's the Conservative Political Action Committee, the largest and most influential gathering of conservatives and right-wing people in the United States and now all over the world, with recent events uh, of CPAC being held not just in the United States, but also in Israel and um, most recently in Hungary. CPAC this time in the United States was held in Houston, Texas, uh, and it was pretty much exactly what you'd expect. Honestly, uh, not that much to write home about here. Um, there weren't any major surprises in Trump or Orban's speech. Uh, they were the they were the you know sort of like keynote speakers here. Trump is essentially putting himself in the position to run for the Republican candidacy for president in twenty twenty four. That's almost certainly going to happen. Orban is trying to position himself as the leader, or at least one of the leading lights, of internationalist right-wing politics, you know, verging on fascism. And his appearance at CPAC seems to be uh, really cementing that. Probably the most interesting thing that happened um, is that there was a staged cage housing someone who invaded the Capitol building on January 6th, uh, acting like a political prisoner. So this is somebody who hasn't been prosecuted yet, who is like acting like, you know, as if he were a political prisoner, which is what they think, that is the Republicans, think that the people who tried to overthrow the government and have since been charged with, you know, like uh, invading the Capitol building with weapons or like attempting to assassinate or kidnap Mike Pence, that, you know, they think these people are political prisoners. Continuing on with news about Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump has taken the fifth, uh, that is, he's uh, pled that he doesn't have to incriminate himself uh, in a New York City civil investigation into his business dealings. Uh, specifically, this is one of the several investigations surrounding the former president, uh, but this one is about uh, supposed asset value inflation of various properties held by the Trump organization, that is, the, the umbrella group that owns Trump businesses, golf courses, hotels, that sorts of thing. Moving on to Brazil, that country's president, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, appeared this week on the popular Brazilian podcast, Flow. And uh, among other things, in this sort of like, you know, puff PR type appearance, he said, you know, hey, I'm not attempting to stage a coup. All these people who say that I'm attempting to stage a coup, I'm not. Um, his defense was, hey, if I was going to stage a coup, would I defend myself against these claims? I mean, that's essentially what he was saying. Um, uh, to me, I think that this is a uh, the lady doth protest too much type situation. Obviously, nothing's wrong. You know, nothing to worry about. Just a major politician, you know, the, the president of a country with deep ties to the military and with serious reasons to think that he's going to be ousted, uh, who has previously said that he would only leave office uh, through death or jail. Um, he's, you know, he's just saying that he's absolutely not thinking about staging a coup. So, you know, nothing to worry about. Returning to the United States, Alex Jones, the unfortunately extremely popular talking head and uh, Holocaust denier, Sandy Hook denier, just a terrible person with terrible politics, uh, has been found to owe just over $4 million in damages to parents of children who were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Now, this is just the beginning of Alex Jones's terrible, terrible uh, financial and legal woes because of some of the most important evidence that was presented in this trial. 
Now, as I talked about last week, the attorneys for the parents of the victims of the Sandy Hook massacre got a lot of information from Alex Jones's attorneys, and uh, it took them an extremely long time and was very hard to get this information. Uh, Alex Jones was not interested in cooperating with the investigation. But late in the process, his attorneys unwittingly gave the other side, uh, that is the people representing the parents, a massive trove of information. Now, this included all of the text messages on Alex Jones's phone uh, prior to uh, apparently the summer of 2020. Uh, and of course, this included a lot of information about his denial of the Sandy Hook massacre. But it also included a lot of other stuff, including conversations between Alex Jones and Roger Stone, who is a liaison between the Trump administration and fascist organizations like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. This is especially important because Alex Jones was physically present on January 6th, staging rallies, galvanizing crowds. Um, he did not actually enter the building himself, but he has given a deposition to the January 6th committee. Uh, he claims that he pled the fifth and said little to them. But the most important thing here is that apparently this leak that, you know, let out these texts on Alex Jones's phone, it wasn't just act it wasn't just his phone. Uh, what they leaked was the hard drive of a lawyer who had represented Jones and also a bunch of other fascists related to January 6th, including uh, members of the Proud Boys. This means that this information could be vital to determining who knew what, when and where, and what their relationship was to official Trump administration officials or other members of the uh, Republican Party, including members of Congress. And this information has been given to the January 6th Special Investigation Committee. And uh, we're going to eventually find out what it says. Speaking of eventually finding out what it says, uh, talking about the, well, probably the biggest story on the right wing this week, and that is the raid on Donald Trump's home, which was conducted on August 9th. Now, Donald Trump's private residence officially is Mar-a-Lago in Florida. It's a golf resort, hotel, steakhouse type thing that the Trump organization owns. And the president moved his official residence there, uh, that, that, that is his private residence there to Florida from New York during his presidency. Trump on January 9th said that the FBI was raiding his home. And like most news stories, most news sources were like, skeptical. You know, they thought that he was exaggerating, but then it turned out to be absolutely true. Trump was not physically present on the premises on the January 9th of this raid. Uh, and so the Secret Service was pretty minimal on the surface. Uh, the FBI had no trouble accessing the Trump house. Like, you know, the, this is a private residence that they were uh, invading. Um, a lot of really crazy things about this raid. Uh, some of the most important things about it are that it was a no-knock warrant, uh, which means that they didn't give any warning about this. They just showed up and said, hey, we're here, we're the FBI, we're going to investigate your home. We're going to look at what's inside of it. The other most interesting thing here is that uh, the director of the FBI currently is somebody who Trump appointed. And so this means that a Trump appointee was overseeing probably the biggest escalation in the investigation of Donald Trump's crimes as president and, you know, after being president. Uh, the other person who had to sign off this was uh, J. 
Joe Biden's administration's attorney general, Merrick Garland, whom the GOP refused to certify as a SCOTUS justice in 2016, which sort of like sparked this current wave of GOP appointees to the Supreme Court. This means that the head of the FBI, again, a Trump appointee, and Merrick Garland had to agree that there was evidence of a crime in Trump's private residence. And specifically, the crime that they were looking for was uh, the presence of classified documents, which we know Trump did take from the White House to his private residence after he left office. Now, he claims that he took those documents uh, and then later returned them. You know, he claims that he returned all of those documents in a previous sort of like legal wrangling experience with the Department of Justice and with the National Archives, which is tasked with maintaining records of what presidents do and their documents. Uh, he claims that he returned all of that stuff earlier this year. But this FBI raid could not have been justified, at least on paper, unless Merrick Garland and the leader of the FBI agree that, th that there was probably evidence of a further crime, of the crime of continuing to keep secret documents at the Trump house. And specifically, we're talking, we're not just talking about like documents that are supposed to be in the National Archive. We're talking about documents that, you know, if they were in the wrong hands, could jeopardize the security of the United States. Important security documents, important protocol documents about how the United States handles things like uh, presidential security or war or communications amongst the branches of the United States government. This is really big, important, terrifying stuff that the Trump administration took from the White House into what was now, you know, just the private residence of a private individual. So we don't know what they found. Um, Trump administration and his aides, they, they, they refuse to share what the warrant was or what specifically the FBI was looking for. The FBI isn't telling anybody. Another interesting aspect of this is that um, apparently Joe Biden knew nothing about this. Uh, he was not briefed on it. He was not warned about it. He learned about it on the news from Trump ranting about it, essentially just like everybody else did. Now, in addition to whatever fallout that these documents, whatever they are, or whatever other evidence of any crimes that the FBI found at the Trump residence, the other major fallout of this is that a lot of people in the GOP and just like conservatives and right-wingers in general, are looking at this as a real watershed moment. In their minds, this is like the, a declaration of war against Trump, against conservatives, against the right wing. They think that this is a gloves-coming-off partisan warfare moment. And they're responding to it in that way. Uh, a lot of members of Congress and other leaders in the Republican Party are literally saying like, oh, we need to defund the FBI, or like, we need to destroy the FBI and create in its place a partisan investigation committee, you know, that, that they think that they would be in charge of. Uh, essentially, these people are saying that Trump's rights have been violated, and that this is the equivalent of something like Watergate, despite, again, the fact that the person who ordered this raid was actually a Trump appointee, and apparently, Biden, the leader of the Democratic Party and the, you know, executive officer of the United States did not know about this. That is irrelevant to them. Uh, they don't believe it. Instead, they think that this is, you know, the starting gun of a civil war. And their response is not going to be pretty. Uh, it's already pretty ugly. And we're just going to see that escalate further and further and further as time goes on. As a side note, 
uh, it is actually quite cute that uh, this raid was carried out on the eve of the uh, resignation of Richard Nixon. Uh, so that's, that, that's just a fun little history tidbit. And speaking of fun little history tidbits, I'm going to close this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week is a fun one. I'm talking about Hugo Boss, uh, who is a German fashion designer or was a German fashion designer during the pre-war and Nazi period. Uh, his name continues to uh, be the label of a sort of fast fashion slash high-end, you know, I don't really know anything about fashion uh, per se, uh, brand. Uh, Hugo Boss, the person, however, was a Nazi, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, I mean it literally. Hugo Boss was born in the German Empire uh, in a place called Württemberg, uh, which is a region in Germany, in 1885. He studied to be a merchant. Uh, he was a merchant's apprentice as a youth uh, in order to support his parents' business. This succeeded. Uh, he eventually took over their lingerie business in their relatively small hometown in 1908. He was then conscripted, along with most other able-bodied adult German men, into World War I, where he served uh, throughout the duration of the war. After the war, he started a clothing company again in his hometown in 1923. Uh, then it expanded to a factory. He was relatively successful. However, the economic downturn of the late 1920s, you know, the Great Depression, hit his company, like many other consumer companies, extremely hard. Uh, he had to file for bankruptcy, and by 1931, he had managed to claw his way back into solvency, but with six sewing machines only. Uh, so he was a real struggling businessman. That same year, 1931, Hugo Boss joined the Nazi party as member number 508,889, which is a pretty low number. Uh, this is an early adopter kind of number, right? You know, he's not the sort of guy who got galvanized doing nothing on the street. He's the sort of person who is like, hey, these people have power. These people are the new thing, and I can join them and get power and influence and economic solvency. And that was precisely what was happening. These were the main building slash rebuilding years for the Nazis, you know, the, the, the early, early 30s, as they ascended from the lows that they experienced uh, following Hitler's time in prison. Uh, remember that the Nazi party assumes the leadership of Germany in 1933, so uh, Boss coming in under the wire, as it were, in 1931, really cements him as an important early supporter of the Nazi party. As such, this got him a lot of plum contracts with the party, including contracts to produce the SS and SA, that is the brown shirts, uniforms in 1932. These are important contracts, massive, huge, and they catapulted the company into huge success and profitability. These uniforms were not designed by Hugo Boss or any of his designers, but rather were designed by people working in the Nazi party. During World War II, Hugo Boss and his company continued to get extremely lucrative contracts, not just from the Nazi party, but also from the German state. Uh, they got contracts from the Wehrmacht, that, that is the, the German military, for example. They also used the forced labor of over 100 people, uh, as well as the forced labor of dozens of prisoners of war. Uh, investigations into this resulted in um, some civil litigation in Germany after the war. Hugo Boss also personally held other party and government positions in the Nazi party, and as an early adopter, he got preferential treatment. After the war, however, he was correctly assessed to have been a real Nazi loyalist. 
uh, and uh, in the process of denazification, which was the sort of civil means of dealing with the fact that so many people in Germany had willingly and like joyfully participated in systems of mass murder, oppression, and fascism. Um, denazification in uh, Hugo Boss's case resulted in him being correctly identified as a pretty high-tier member of the political movement of the Nazis. He was called the Nazi activist. You know, the, that was the category he was assigned to. This meant that he was barred from ever holding public office in Germany and also specifically from ever running a business in Germany. This meant that his son-in-law then took over the business and ran it for the rest of Hugo Boss's life. Boss later repealed this and got his status reduced uh, to being merely a, quote, follower of the Nazi movement. That's, of course, completely ridiculous. He was like a, like a middling-level party activist for his uh, entire later career, uh, but it was uh, of no avail. Because Hugo Boss died this week in history, August 9th, 1948, just after the war, of an infection brought upon by a tooth abscess. So, Hugo Boss, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro outro and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really enjoy the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. You can also reach me on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right, that's H I S T of the right, and fascism 15. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week.